0: This is Block by Block, a community news program from LP, Philadelphia 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Kirsten Adams.
1: And I'm Brett Roman Williams. In the next half hour, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about one of the region's largest hunger relief programs, a new mural in the neighborhood celebrating Philly's ballroom scene, Philadelphia's colored girls' museum, and high schoolers experimenting with an unusual way to clean up the Schuylkill River.
0: But first, my co-host Brett Roman Williams has been bringing us stories about the impact of unsolved homicides on those who are touched by by the loss of a friend or family member. In part three of a series called Left in the Dark, Brett takes us through his own personal journey, a path that led him through the depths of grief to becoming a passionate advocate. He also sheds light on some resources available to those grappling with the loss of a loved one.
1: After losing my brother Derek to an unsolved murder, My life was thrown into a spiral of grief and uncertainty. In seeking support, I discovered a victim service nonprofit named the Anti-Violence Partnership of Philadelphia, better known as AVP. AVP is a vital resource in West Philadelphia that provides crucial services to those touched by violence. AVP offers free grief counseling and therapy, court accompaniment, assistance through the Victims' Compensation Program, and youth violence outreach. And the best part, their support comes with no strings attached, no need for insurance, or proof of citizenship. Now, initially, I was skeptical about grief counseling. How could talking help bring my brother back? But then I realized something. It wasn't about bringing him back. It was about learning to carry the weight of his absence. And AVP's free grief counseling did just that. Through weekly counseling sessions, my grief counselor saw something in me, the potential to make a difference. Encouraged by her, I took a leap of faith. From a client at AVP, I stepped into the role as a board member, and today I stand before you not just as a co-victim, but as AVP's board chairman. My journey has introduced me into incredible allies like Adara Combs and John Appledorn. Adara, the first director of the Philadelphia Office of the Victim Advocate, brings a wealth of experience from her tenure at the district attorney's office, but is also a co-victim of violence herself.
2: The Office of Victim Advocate was created last year in January of 2022 to connect victims and co-victims to services in the city of Philadelphia, while also doing strategic planning for the city with a focus on how policies and procedures of the city, any city agency, impact victims and co-victims. We'll not only look to service them in terms of connecting them to whatever it is that they need, but also then look to make sure that there's no systemic issue that needs to be addressed.
1: Adara says her office can help connect people with a variety of different services.
2: That can look like counseling. That can look like support going to court, reimbursement funding for maybe funeral expenses or restitution that wasn't covered through a court order if someone was even arrested. That can look like support through the process as they navigate this terrain of being violated. And it can also be government services. Sometimes, you know, folks are looking to, you know, maybe they live in PHA housing and they need to be relocated within PHA housing. Well, there's a whole subset of, opportunity there that they otherwise wouldn't know how to navigate. Obviously, we're not a law enforcement agency. So in terms of solving actual crimes, that's not our lane of travel. However, there is a uh, gap between law enforcement and the community. And that is part of the reason why there could be so many cases that go unsolved because there's a disconnect in terms of information sharing. I've had people come to me directly and say, I have Video. So anytime I hear information like that, my office takes on the role of making sure that that bridge between the person and the person working to solve the crime is connected. And that not only is that bridge there, but that we literally walk the bridge with them.
1: John Appledorn, once a captain of the Philadelphia Homicide Department and now president of the nonprofit, the Citizens Crime Commission, brings a unique law enforcement perspective. His insights on community police dynamics and the importance of anonymous tips are crucial in understanding our city's fight against crime.
3: We actually act as a connection between the citizens and law enforcement, getting them information that they need to maybe solve some crimes. We're all trained investigators or law enforcement officers
1: that are retired. Their tip line gives cash rewards for anonymous tips leading to arrests, bridging the gap between the community and justice. It's an anonymous
3: tip line. You know, people can call in, give us information on a crime. Uh, we'll ask them some questions and uh, we will get that information and then we'll pay a settlement to the investigative authorities. And what they get in return is they get a code number because they don't want to give their name. We keep your identity close vest and just to
1: us. We're trained to get out what information we can so that it's useful to the police. The Citizens' Crime Commission operates through the generous support of the community. Families impacted by crime often contribute to the reward fund, while local corporations make donations too. This collective effort is what fuels their mission. We get calls to detectives,
3: they are and they say, we have friends and family and we want to put a reward up for whoever did this to our family member, and uh, we'll take the reward money and they'll put it in a special account, we can't touch it for anything but that. We tell them we're going to keep it a year, and if there's not an arrest and conviction in that time, you get all the money back, or you can let it go another year. The people put the money up, no arrest made, they get everything back, and a lot of them donate. Like I said, companies we have companies that support
1: us and everything like that. Tackling violence in our communities is a collaborative effort. It requires the courage of co-victims, the commitment of advocacy groups, and the diligence of law enforcement. If you're in need of support or wish to help, reach out to the Philadelphia Office of the Victim Advocate at victim.advocate at phila.gov. And if you have information on an unsolved crime, contact the Citizens Crime Commission's tip line at 215-546-8477. To learn more about the Anti-Violence Partnership of Philadelphia, visit avpphila.org. Remember, your voice, your action can light the path from darkness to hope. Block by Block reporter Emarie Lambert recently got the chance to learn more about one of the region's largest hunger relief organizations. She brings us this story about how that group is addressing food insecurity in Philadelphia and the surrounding counties.
4: This past fall, I interviewed Read by 4th team members in preparation for Reading Promise Week. We met at the Share Food Program warehouse where the books and materials for the week-long Literacy Festival were being stored and distributed. I had never seen so much food in one place. Share Food Program is a nonprofit organization located in the Huntington Park section of Philadelphia that partners with more than 100 pantries across Philadelphia, Montgomery and Delaware counties to provide free food and resources to neighbors in need. Our work has reached far and wide where Montgomery County, Delaware County, Bucks, Philadelphia County. So our food that you see here in this massive warehouse goes to all five of those counties. Aziza Grant, Share Foods volunteer engagement coordinator, shares the programming and some of the ways that they support their communities. Share has been in this community since 1986 doing this food insecurity work. In 1991, we became a nonprofit and now today we're the largest food bank for food insecurity in this region. We help senior citizens, students. We are also found in the public school system helping with the school lunch program. We also have a farm in the back that teaches urban community farming to schools and to community members. So our work is not just giving food from boxes of food. We help the community in all those ways. During the COVID-19 crisis, many social challenges and disparities were heightened. The unexpected shutdowns confined people to their homes and limited access to stores and ways to replenish. This was especially true for the elderly, the low or fixed income households, the unhoused and families with school aged children that relied on either one or two meals that school provided during the day. George Matisik, Executive Director of Share Food Program, says, The pandemic pushed food insecurity rates to heights we'd never seen. Together, we need to take action every chance we have, and we must find innovative solutions for every obstacle in the way of food inequity and justice. No matter what occurs in the next year or two, no matter what we face as a city or country, one constant remains— People need to eat, and we're going to be there to feed them. The holiday season is filled with the spirit of giving and receiving. Most festivities and gatherings include abundant amounts of food. While food may seem plentiful for some during the season, Share Food Program runs a variety of food distribution programs all year long in an effort to combat food shortage and to increase access to healthier food options in communities that may struggle. If you would like to learn more, find out ways to help as a volunteer or community partner, or if you or someone you know is in need, go to their website at sharefoodprogram.org. This is E. Marie Lambert for Block by Block.
0: High school students in Roxborough are experimenting with a new way to remove pollution from river water. They say it could be an eco-friendly way to keep the Schuylkill River clean. Block by Block's Barbara Martin Ellis brings us their story.
5: What comes to mind when you think of mussels, those shelled creatures clumped together on rocks near bodies of water? High school seniors at Lincoln Environmental High School see engines that can clean our water and save the city millions of dollars. Jordan Riddick and Alex Morris are two students working on the project, and Jordan explains where the mussels came from.
6: So with our mussel project, we've actually received the mussels and the tanks from the uh, Philadelphia Water Department last year. And we've been doing basic tests in regards to like the pH levels, the water levels, the temperature of the tanks, as well as how they're performing and how they're like reacting inside of different temper temperatures.
5: Can you come and explain what's happening in the tank? I see it and I just see water, but I'm not sure like what I'm looking at.
7: There's this tank and there's two levels. There's the bottom level where the water is flowing, and then there's the top level where the mussels live. And the mussels live in little beds full of sand because they typically live embedded in sand. Yeah,
6: basically mimics their habitat.
7: When we got them, they were like the size of like a pencil point. You could barely see them unless you put it on your finger. But they're like as big as like an inch in your finger now. What's the goal? So the goal is to basically see if they can clean water, but in what specific temperatures the mussels can digest certain like chemicals and waste, and then when they release it, it's not harmful to the environment. So by testing the pH and different things like that, we're able to see how well they're cleaning the water, but also by the different tanks what temperature is suitable for their living conditions. How many have you lost? We actually didn't
6: lose that man. We actually had a 3% uh, fatality rate. I know that um, last year, the president of Penn State came in as well as a senator of the state and a state representative, and she actually has some essential oils on her, and essential oils and lotions, if you have any of that stuff on your hands, it's actually toxic to the um, muscles, so if you actually put your hands on the muscles and you have those essential oils and blessings on your hands, it'll actually kill the muscles.
7: Now why were they here? Were they here to learn about the project and came in and killed it? They were basically here to, like how we're explaining it to you, to explain the progress and research that we've been doing because this is still fairly new to us as well. Like, you know, we're the ones that started it, but, you know, um, we were trying to, like, get them to, like, see our work and, like, tell them, like, hey, like, here at Lincoln, all this is what we're doing, like, to bring not just awareness, but, like, just to get it out there. Like, this is something that nobody's ever done before. And she's right. I spoke to their teacher, Matt Van
5: Cohenberg, and he said that there have been studies on saltwater mussels, but his students working with freshwater mussels are doing original research. I asked him how the project got
8: started. Two summers ago, myself and another teacher I'm from the school, Ms. Giesi, we were at a training by the water department. And they had mentioned that about eight years ago, they tried to have different schools grow mussels, just so that students could learn about how muscles behave and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, 100% of the muscles in that program died in under a month. They were going to restart it at a private school that has a class size of eight students. And so Ms. Gizzi and I... Went to the person during our lunch break and and we said if you want to see if this could work at a school Instead of putting it at a private school with a very small class size We are the environmental science high school for the school district of Philadelphia put it in a public school Where it's real conditions and then you can see whether this program could work
5: This project is in partnership with the city's water department. They take the mussels when the students are out of school for the summer, and there's a lot of hope around it. I actually believe
6: that it actually could be promising, especially because they're already doing a great job with our controlled experiments. So I believe that if the city was to invest in millions of mussels, we could actually make a great impact. With the mussels alone, I believe that we could probably save millions of dollars compared to how they are currently treating the water systems,
7: You know, it'll be less money, but also it'll be more efficient using things that are more natural. Like when we use like things like from the water department, they're using all these filtration systems and all that. And it's not doing what it needs to exactly do. But with these mussels, like it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't kill them, you know. So if we put them in there, they help us, but we also help them, providing them with an environment that will let them live, but also giving us clean water that isn't expensive because, frankly, the way that it looks like, Things are just going to keep going higher and higher. You need to add
5: a lot of mussels to the river to have a major impact, but each mussel that's added to the river can help clean it for decades. The lifespan is actually about sixty to one hundred years. And if the mussels are already there, it would just be an investment of just bringing in more mussels. If the mussels are already in the Schuylkill,
6: Oh yeah, if they're already in the Schuylkill, then they're already doing their jobs at the Schuylkill. If there's any pollutants being dropped into the Schuylkill River, I'm pretty sure that whatever mussels are in there are actually doing their little job. There might not be as many as you would like to, so I know that the numbers would actually determine whether or not if there's like a lot of pollutants being cleaned up or if there's a little bit. But like I said before, if the city invests into a lot of mussels, then I believe that you can make some great changes, not just in the Schuylkill, but worldwide.
1: A new mural in Philadelphia's gayborhood celebrates the city's ballroom scene. Ballroom is a subculture that invites queer performers to dance and walk in different categories that parody, binary gender norms and the status quo. My co-host Kirsten Adams spoke with Jason Bowman, who is the head or king mother of the Supreme House of Montclair. And one of the driving forces behind the mural, which is finally, which is called Finally on 13th. For so long, LGBTQ.
9: You know, queer stories were always underground. It was never talked about in the public life.
0: Philadelphia native and ballroom icon Jason Bowman was more than willing to bring some much-needed Black queer culture to the neighborhood After approaching mural arts two years ago and proposing a mural celebrating Philly's rich ballroom history, Bowman, alongside artist Naya Livingston, designed a mural centered on ballroom, icons, and pride.
9: I hated the fact that when I looked through Philadelphia, I'd never seen representation of myself. And when I say myself, I've never seen any black queer people highlighted through the mural arts department. And we have people that are doing the work, not just me. We had Michael Henson. We had Damon Hughes. You know, I can go down a list of people who were a part of community that was doing this great work for black and brown queer spaces. A lot of the people that you see on the mural, though some of them are not from Philadelphia, they are a part of our Philadelphia history. You can't have a mural dedicated to ballroom without Michael Gaskins and Taffy Jadu and Kenny Polo and Raphael Excellence and Jay Blonick, Alberni and man, Tiny Cartier. Being younger and driving through the city, I remember I told my mom, I said, one day I'm going to be on a mural. And she was like, okay, well, if you're going to be on a mural like, what are you going to be on a mural for? I said, I'm not sure what I'm going to be on a mural for. I'm going to be on a mural for something. So then one night leaving out of Boyer nightclub, me and the father of the house of London, Michi, we were walking past the parking lot 13th for Lucas, and I said to him, we need to have a mural for ballroom. And he was like, Jason, they're never going to give us a mural for ballroom. I was like, they need to give us one. They need to paint this ugly mural over right here and give us one on 13th Street. Like, 13th Street is where we came alive at at night. That's where all the balls happened. That's where we would hang out at. That's where we would fellowship at. There's so many stories that happened on 13th Street, so it had to start there.
0: Despite Philly's ballroom origins starting on 13th Street, the Gaborhood has a history of discrimination against Black, trans, and queer people. Bowman would say the mural is only the first step in addressing the neighborhood's past and painting a new and more inclusive future.
9: As I watch these neighborhoods in Philadelphia get gentrified, it's like they're pushing us out. There has been a lot of racism that has happened in the neighborhood I can go through countless of different situations that I've encountered with racism in the neighborhood It's almost like they designed this purposely for Black people to not have spaces in the neighborhood and though yes i will admit they have gotten a little bit better as far as acceptance and opening up space for us but it's still so much more work to do and i just kind of felt like we need a mural that represents black people but also represents ballroom because ballroom is an intricate part of philadelphia history and like i always tell people that ballroom scene is american history is black history it's just history period it's a history that's not spoken of growing up in the city of philadelphia you know growing up gay in the 90s was a very challenging space because it was a space of me having to hide who i was it was a space where i had to pretend to be something that i wasn't and ballroom was my safe haven where i was finally able to be celebrated for my uniqueness my loudness my creativity my colorful personality and i just hope that when people look at this mural they look at that mural and they feel all the things that they feel inside, whether they're queer, whether they're an ally, they look at that mural and they see the rich color, they see and feel the energy of the ancestors of Ballroom, and they can feel and see themselves in that mural, because the mural is a celebration of life, It's a celebration of, of course, black and brown queer spaces, but at the same time, it's just a celebration for everyone that loves movement and loves color and loves sound and loves creativity for you to see something expressive and look at that mural and see yourself in some type of way because the beautiful thing about ballroom for me when I entered I was finally able to be around people where I seen myself and I didn't have to pretend to be hyper masculine or toxic masculine or this macho man that I wasn't I was finally able to be (laughs) Jason.
0: block by block reporter kathy brown recently visited the color girls museum in germantown where she spoke with founder fashti dubois about the only museum dedicated to the experiences of what she calls ordinary color girls and women dubois is an artist who created the museum in her own house eight years ago while dealing with the grief of having recently lost her husband kathy says visiting the museum was a moving experience for her
10: every now and then we can be introduced to information that expands our knowledge and levels us up in some way. A spiritual awakening in an unexpected space. This was my interview experience with Ms. Vashti Dubois, founder and executive director of the Carla Girls Museum. We walked the museum where she imparted knowledge to me that touched my soul creating for me a connection and identifying of self. In this interview, I highlight some of the awesome work she is doing at the Colored Girls Museum. When did you know that it was going to be a museum? It's funny. I was just trying to focus on something that wasn't my grief. And so we did a show. It was a friend show about a house and a collective of colored girls who get together and transform a house into a museum and it was a show that's what it was and the show ended and the artists didn't come and get their art <laughs> and so it was just here and here and here and at that time this house was in foreclosure and one of the reasons I did this show was it was sort of like a goodbye party to the house because I raised my family here so my husband was gone, looked like the house was going to be gone. But like I'm a theater person, and so I turned to the thing that has always provided some kind of peace for me. to your soul, absolutely. And so it was just a show, because I, I know how to do girls' programming. I've always done girls' programming. I thought maybe I would do a programming, not a damn museum. Right? And you have to understand that. I was living here, so why would I think that I No, that's not what I thought. You know, we did, like, Saturday openings, so, like, we would put stuff on Facebook, you know, the art was here, That's what we would do. I remember this one day that stands out. My colleague now, who was just my friend at the time, but who's helping, he calls me up and he says, Vashti, have you looked at Facebook? And I said, no, he goes, Vashti, it has, like, 200 people interested in coming. And I was like, somebody's playing on our page. But just in case let me get some more support here. that's right <laughs> so I remember standing on the third floor where those two green chairs are and looking out the window and this has only happened three times in the history of this museum people lined up going up the pathway and up the block because we didn't have tour times and all the specifics we have now they sure. just came coming up with the titled The Colored Girls Museum was kind of an inside joke for myself. It was an inside joke, and it was also a backhanded slap because I came in here perhaps a month after Al's death, and I looked around. My youngest son was still here, my daughter, my grandson, and just, you know, you look at things differently. You know, your mother just passed. Absolutely. And I said to myself, it's just a museum. It's just stuff. You were naming this space and didn't even know it. No. How did you wind up defining ordinary? How did that come to you? Honestly, you know, I was smart. The expectation was black excellence. Before anybody was saying black excellence, it was a talented ten, And it was such a burden. Mm. Because in that space, just being who you are and, you know, how our families prepared us for the world— how your hair had to be done, how your clothes, like everything, right? And just after my husband died, just sitting in that grief and the expectation of the people who were in my community that I would just go on, all the things that people say, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, you're struck. But I finally had, I had enough. I was like, my ordinary life matters. The ordinary things that happen to me matter. The ordinary things that happen to ordinary black women every day that we just, it's not even just that other people expect us to get up and go on. We expect it of ourselves. And when people were coming to the first shows here, I would say to them, you know, your ordinary is good enough. If you don't do anything but get up and get out in the morning, if you just get up, that's... That's powerful and significant and important. And you giving it words is amazing. Your ordinary is good enough. This particular show is called Sit a Spell. So you'll notice that there are rooms that are really organized to invite you to sit. Like you can sit here at the table, but then many of these rooms have an invocation chair. These are spell chairs. So name of the show is Sit a Spell. What inspired that? So often when we're under the gun our impulse is to go you just keep responding keep responding keep responding but what we know is really powerful is sometimes just sitting a spell and it's an old southern term like you invite people to your porch sit a spell just sit a spell so it's also sitting a spell for you but also sitting a spell in community like just sitting with your people just Mm. rocking on your porch or sitting in your room listening to some music just sit a spell But then there's the word spell and what that word invokes. So we can imagine also that when you say that phrase, sit a spell, that there's something else happening. There's another kind of vibration and energy that's happening. One of the things that has always stood out to me in the Bible, you know, there are things that stay with you. It's the phrase, I go there to prepare a space for you. And what I want Any colored girl who walks through this door to know, even if she doesn't get it immediately, I want her to carry it out of here with her. It's it's that somebody prepared a space for you. They really thought about you. And this space is prepared for you.
0: The museum's future is currently in question as the city has determined that it needs a zoning variance to stay in its current residential location. Members of the Germantown community, including the museum's next-door neighbor, have expressed support through letters and testimony at a public hearing in November. The Zoning Board is expected to issue a ruling soon.
1: This season of Block by Block is produced by Rashid Ajamu, Kathy Brown, Connie Kham, E. Marie Lambert, Robert Martin Ellis, and us, Kirsten Adams, and Brett Roman-Williams. Rashid Ajamu is our board operator tonight.
0: Brad Linder is radio news managing editor for WPPM. Peter Liu is radio operations manager. And Allison Durham is WPPM's radio program manager. This is the final episode of the year for Block by Block. But we'll be back in the spring with new episodes of the show featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region.
1: You can find past episodes of the show on Philly Camp SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts.